Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back today with part two of our exploration of facial recognition machinery. Uh, last time, of course, we talked about uh, some tech biz world stuff uh, that that may be highly relevant to your life, especially in the near future. Uh, we talked about an artificial intelligence company that was recently profiled in the New York Times as uh, selling a service to law enforcement that would use uh, – well, they stole your face right off your head mm-hmm. and scraped it from the internet and now they're selling that to law enforcement as a tool supposedly for identifying people with a high rate of accuracy. Uh, linking your anonymous face to all of the digital information that's out there about you. Long story short, uh, we're all boned uh, <laughs> unless uh, we uh, you know, we actually you know put into place various laws and protections that uh, that either keep these technologies from fully coming online or make sure that they are um, restricted from uh, destroying the privacy at least of uh, you know private individuals. And we'll talk more about that aspect of the subject I think in the next episode when we get more into the, the modern technology. Uh, today we wanted to focus more on the biological world of facial recognition. Uh, what's been learned in, in recent decades in psychology and neuroscience about the recognition of faces by animals like us. Right. Because ultimately I guess the counter argument is, hey, we're just trying to teach computers and phones to do what humans do and what animals can do, and that is look at a face and respond to it, identify the individual behind that face. Right, and while that might be something that's scary as a capability for the machine to have, it's something that's uh, part of our survival history and an important part of our social lives. Oh, yeah, because we go around every day, we're walking around, we're driving, we're you know in an exercise class, etc., and our brain is engaging in that exercise of, which human is that? Who's that? Do, do Who's I that? know that human? Wait, I think I know that human. Wait, further analysis reveals I do not. It's a really funny thing, actually, when you notice how much your brain is just going, who's that? Yeah. Who's that? Yeah, it's I mean, constant. Huh? <laughs> it's like a – it's a ridiculous amount of your, your processing power is eaten up with that narrative. Yeah. In, in fact, I mean it makes – that's why solitude is sometimes nice because it just removes us from that exercise. Uh-huh. Uh, now, granted, you could have too much solitude and I guess maybe the brain ends up using all that energy that it would use towards identifying or trying to identify strangers toward uh, uh, new and destructive uh, things. But uh, yeah, for the most part, it is an important part of making your way around human society. Now, at the risk of sounding like I'm making excuses, I got to say, man, this is a complicated subject. This is one of those mm-hmm. where the deeper I dug into it, the more and more it just seemed like we were missing out on. So, I mean, I think we just have to preface this by saying it's impossible for us to do the whole subject of biological facial recognition justice in this episode. We'll do our best in a reasonable length of time. Yeah, I find it, like it's easy to sort of glimpse the complexity of it when you engage in exercises like, say, attempting to draw a face that you know. And granted, that involves artistic ability and talent Mm -hmm. that is sometimes a talent that is underdeveloped. (laughs) But still, like even I find myself without having that talent, just even the mental exercise of then trying to figure out, okay, if I was to draw Joe's face, wait, what does Joe look like again? Okay, I have to form the picture in my mind. And then I have to – then I second guess it. I'm like, is that really what Joe looks like? Or it's, it's even it's even harder if I'm in, you know, not physically in the room with that individual to get Does the time. Does he really have horns and pointed <laughs> teeth like that? Yeah. Um, 
so so that's 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 one side. But also just the the idea of recalling faces. Like, oh, yeah. and granted, we're dragging in the complexity of of memory when we're we're doing that. But I think it also hints at the. Um, it, it hints at how difficult this is to really unwrap what happens when we look at another face and identify it, uh, much less when we recall it from memory. Now, we've discussed face perception in the brain before, for example, in our episodes on face blindness and in an episode called The Doppelganger Network. Uh, and in these previous episodes, something that we definitely talked about was the history of how our understanding of facial recognition in the brain was illuminated by studying cases of people with uh, with malfunctions of facial recognition in one way or another, uh, primarily with a condition that we uh, talked about in the face blindness episode. It is known as face blindness or prosopagnosia, which is a condition with a somewhat misleading name if you go with face blindness because – People with face blindness, I, I think it would be best explained by saying they actually see faces just fine. Uh, the real issue is that people with this condition have difficulty recognizing faces, not seeing them. Right. Like one example I always come back to, and I, I think I've probably brought this up on the show before, is there's there's an excellent episode of uh, that, that television series Hannibal mm -hmm. about Hannibal Lecter. In, in which there's a character that also has face blindness. And when they behold Hannibal Lecter in a key scene, all they see is like a, a featureless flesh mask mm -hmm. uh, because it's like they can't see the face at all. That is not based on any of the material we've looked at and, and accounts that we've read. That is not what face blindness is. Sounds like face blindness, the experience of face blindness, is more akin to say when I look at some vegetation – and I ask myself, is that poison ivy? I know I've looked at a picture of poison ivy. I'm not sure if that's poison ivy or not. It, it's not like I don't see a plant. I just cannot identify it compared to other plants of similar form and, and function. And therefore, I have to fall back on, on okay, well, let me try and remember. What are, the, what are the features? Three leaves, let it be. How many leaves does this have? And I start mm -hmm. to have to engage in a more – in a different kind of – cognitive exercise to try and make a positive identification. Yeah, I mean, I think it might be even more complicated a task than that. It's like the people who have typical powers of facial recognition don't even recognize what a superpower this is that comes effortlessly. Yeah. The point of comparison I've used before, and, and I think I heard back from some people after this episode saying it was a good one, was the idea of holly bushes. Like if you mm -hmm. look at one holly bush, you can see it just fine. You can note all the colors and the shapes and all that. But imagine you're walking down the street and you happen to pass by a place where that same holly bush you looked at earlier has been like dug up and replaced somewhere else. Would you notice it was the same bush? Hmm. I mean, yeah. no, it looks like just another bush, right? Yeah, unless you were engaging in a far more tedious exercise of like counting the branches on the first bush, you know, really yeah. getting in there or, you know, marking it with a Sharpie, that sort of thing. Exactly, yeah, because our brain are not specially wired to casually notice and remember minor visual differences in individual plants of the same species. But it appears that typical human brains are specially wired to notice and remember minor visual differences in the hundreds of honestly pretty similar oblong orbs of meat and teeth that we interact with every day. Yeah, I mean, because a lot of faces are similar, you know, and, uh, and and that's often where we get that initial, like, mischaracterization, where we glance and we think we see somebody we know, but then we realize we don't. Right. And occasionally you'll get that kind of, like, 
triple take moment where somebody, oh, at first glance, it seems right. And then at second glance, it seems almost right. Uh-huh. And then you realize, no, this is just a very similar looking um, person to someone that, uh, you know, someone I've encountered before, but this is in fact a stranger. Do you have that one person who you see doppelgangers of all the time? Like one specific friend or celebrity that you always think you see somewhere? Hmm. I guess. I mean, there are certain, you know, there, there are certain looks that are, you know, that are common, certain styles of dressing that are common. Um, I've got a very weird one. Do you want to hear let's it? Let's hear it. <laughs> okay. So for some reason, I, I keep thinking that I see the American uh, uh, physician and geneticist Francis Collins everywhere. <laughs> you know, the guy who worked on the Human Genome Project. Yeah, like, yeah, I've okay. seen a few pictures. I've never met him. I've just uh-huh. seen a few pictures of him around. Uh, and I see like basically an older white guy with a mustache and glasses. And I think, is that Francis Collins? Hmm. I don't know why. Interesting. I mean, I, I find it th- – there are people that I'm on like heightened alertness for, mm-hmm. mainly – like for instance, your boss, you know? Sure. Like I think this is true of everyone. For the most part, you don't want to run into your boss at, say, the grocery store because the grocery store, first of all, is an awkward place to run into anybody. I just ran into a coworker at the grocery store the other day. It's the worst. Uh, great coworker. Nothing against this person at all. But when I saw them, I was like, ah! Yeah, because it's like, let's have this awkward uh, exchange now and let's do it again in uh, one and a half minutes uh, <laughs> on the next <laughs> aisle, and then let's do it another time. Yeah. And it, it's just – it's a terrible exercise. And, yeah, and then, you know, your, your boss, it brings in a, a, additional complexities, no matter how wonderful your boss happens to be. So it, like, it results, at least in my weird mind, of, uh, you know, me being, like, hyper alert, like, are they is, – is, you know, is, the, is my boss here? Is a coworker here? Mm-hmm. I must hide if I see them because I want to spare us both the awkwardness of running into each other. And that's just around the office. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. So telling one human apart from another is obviously a relevant survival skill. So mm-hmm. it's something that our primate brains developed a unique capacity for, uh, especially by means of recognizing the visual features of the face. And in people who have face blindness or prosopagnosia, this recognition capacity has broken down, often due to some kind of brain injury or lesion. And uh, to the person with severe prosopagnosia, human faces can present a problem similar to what we were talking about earlier, like looking at a plant, you know, or looking at similar holly bushes. The person with prosopagnosia can see the person, can see the face, but the faces don't really distinguish themselves from one another in memory because of damage to the special recognition power. And as a side note, there's another interesting fact about face blindness, uh, which is that people who have it also very often, not always, but pretty often have a kind of location blindness as well. Mm -hmm. They can become easily lost because they don't remember visual characteristics of even familiar locations like the building where they work or their house. Yes, I seem to recall uh, Oliver Sacks writing about this. Um, totally, the, yes. The, the, the late author and uh, psychologist who, um, who who had face blindness as well. Yeah, yeah, he did. He wrote about it uh, autobiographically, I believe, in a piece for The New Yorker that mm-hmm. was really good that we talked about in our face blindness episode. Um, so historically – Autopsies on the brains of people with acquired prosopagnosia were very informative because these brains almost always showed lesions on the bottom of a brain region known as the occipitotemporal cortex. And if you want to picture this, it's kind of the rear middle underside of the brain. So you think go down from your temples and then back a little bit and on the underside of the brain – 
this region of the brain is also known as the fusiform gyrus. And brain imaging like CT scans and MRI on living people also confirmed this correlation. Lesions on the fusiform gyrus on the underside of the occipitotemporal cortex were commonly associated with the inability to recognize faces. Meanwhile, real-time brain imaging like fMRI has also associated face processing with increased activity in this part of the brain. So if you look at a human face, your fusiform gyrus tends to get more blood flow. And for that reason, this region of the brain has come to be known as the fusiform face area. Now, it's really important to note that multiple networks of the brain are involved in face perception, and we'll talk about some more studies about that as we go on. But it appears somehow the fusiform gyrus is especially important and that damage to it can tend to cause this. Another way uh, that I wanted to complicate the idea we were talking about earlier that you can usually see faces correctly with uh, prosopagnosia, but that you have trouble recognizing. Uh, a complication to that is like one study I remember seeing video of where there was a patient who had an electrode implanted directly to stimulate his fusiform gyrus, and he was awake and could talk about in real time when there was a, a, a current applied to this part of the brain. He said that his vision remained normal except for people's faces, and when the current was applied, people's faces would tend to kind of metamorphose, hmm. that like their features would appear to move around and stuff. Oh, Interesting. Like more so than just the experience of staring at somebody's face till the information starts, you know, loses kind of consistency. Oh, is that a thing you experience? Uh, yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, with even with— Like saying a word until it loses meaning? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's kind of the effect, too, of, of looking in a mirror too long, you know, where you're not really presented with any new data. Mm -hmm. Like you've, you've absorbed all the data that is necessary uh, to, to properly react and— uh, and situate yourself in reality, but then you keep feeding on the same informational source, uh, which, you know, is kind of like the road to madness, uh, especially mm -hmm. in uh, situations of uh, sensory uh, deprivation. I've certainly had the experience where I stare at somebody's face or stare at, say, a dog's face long mm -hmm. enough that, like, it's it starts to it doesn't look any different, but it starts to decohere as like the seat of the soul and instead becomes textures of organs. Yeah. Do dogs have faces? Of course they do. I don't know. It didn't really, I don't, what is wrong with I don't you? Think of, I mean, I don't think of cats as having faces either. They cats just kind have of, faces? They just kind of have the fronts <laughs> of heads, you know? Um, humans have faces. Where does the Cheshire cat's grin live if not on its face? Well, it's a cartoon character. Cartoon characters have faces because they are uh, they're made in, in at least partially in our likeness. I've just discovered something very sinister about you. <laughs> I guess a pug kind of has a face. A you pug know? definitely has a face. Like, can, we've, we've bred the pug enough to where it, it is as close to having a face as any, any dog can really uh, uh, claim to. Now, there's another interesting fact about biological face perception. I think I mentioned this in the last episode, but just to reiterate, the brain, it turns out, processes familiar versus unfamiliar faces very differently. Like when a face is familiar, the brain is extremely good at recognizing it accurately, even under difficult viewing conditions, bad light, weird angles, partial view, and all that. Mm -hmm. Less familiar faces fail to be recognized under these same conditions. So what's going on with the brain here? Well, uh, just to reference 
one specific study by Sophia M. Landy and Winrich A. Frywald published in Science in 2017 called Two Areas for Familiar Face Recognition in the Primate Brain. Uh, the authors found, quote, familiar faces recruited two hitherto unknown face areas at anatomically conserved locations within the perirhinal cortex and the temporal pole. So in fMRI, these two areas of the brain, but not the rest of the face processing network, responded dramatically to familiar faces emerging from a blur, but they didn't show any special activity when presented with unfamiliar faces. So it sounds like the brain also recruits these special additional networks networks in addition to the regular fusiform face area for identification when it detects a more familiar face. Hmm. Now, of course, historically, evolutionarily, those familiar faces would be the faces of individuals that we are that are that are part of our society, that are part of a close knit group, hmm. um, or I guess potentially enemies that you've encountered physically uh, in the past. But the, the modern uh, like media version of that is that we have all these additional faces as well, like all the, all the actors we've memorized from uh, uh, watching TV and movies and surfing IMDb, for example. Yeah, well, I think one thing that's important is that when a face is familiar, it tends to come with a very complex suite of emotional reactions mm -hmm. uh, that, are, that are implied by the face. You know, you see somebody and you know them to be an adversary or you know them to be a family member or friend. Mm -hmm. You've got all these complex uh, emotions that, that come out of this uh, emotional response called familiarity. I'd imagine the brain's response to unfamiliar faces or less familiar faces tends to be more flat probably, right? Like there's less differentiation in the response. Right, right. And there's probably a lot to be said, and this may be an area of separate study, like what happens when you encounter faces in real life that you have thus far only encountered via media. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's a different scenario. If for nothing else, if nothing else, the the lighting and the makeup is going to be different. And they're so short. <laughs> oh, that's the thing I'm surprised we've never looked into before. There's got to be research on that. Like, why ever you assume that movie stars are seven feet tall until you see them in person? Well, I think it's because they're standing on apple boxes uh, <laughs> a lot of the times. Um, yeah. Now, there's another interesting debate in the history of face processing research that we've discussed on the show once before. I wasn't able to find a resolution here, but, but it is sort of a dispute uh, among these researchers. So uh, to look at a, a foundational kind of study here, there was a study published in Nature Neuroscience in 2000 by Isabel Gauthier et al. And the background here was that research had already shown that People who had been trained to have an expertise in previously unfamiliar objects called greebles, we'll come back to them in a second, uh, people who had that expertise would recruit parts of the brain that are usually used in the processing of faces such as a, uh, the fusiform gyrus and the occipital lobe. And uh, so greebles are these weird little chess piece-like objects with abstract kind of goblin ears and spikes and stuff. I, I really like the greebles. You know, I was reading about greebles. <laughs> and uh, greebles also, uh, another definition, are the and, and it's pretty closely related, I guess, are also the little bits of plastic glued to the tops of objects to make them seem more complex. Star destroyer. Yeah, the star destroyer. Uh, I guess the what um, the Death Star itself or a great example is the, the background on uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, yeah. And at least for a, a, a number of seasons there, you could – if you look closely, you could – recognize the everyday objects that were serving as greebles, right. such as I think a Millennium Falcon toy uh -huh. was back there as a greeble. But yeah, like the 
more junk that is glued to it, uh, the, the more it looks like it has a lot of surface complexity to it. Uh, the, the Borg cube is another example of this. It's not just a cube, uh, which of course it's a you know it's right. a model ship, but then there, you have all these little bits on the outside of it, and it looks even more complicated. Yeah, it's got texture that gives it the illusion of functionality. When yeah. in fact, it's just a it's just a surface that hides nothing real behind it. Yes. And a similar thing would be true of the greebles used in these studies. So they're like a little – imagine a little chess piece that's just got different kinds of little spikes and features poking out of it. Okay. And so you can train people on these things and say you learn the name for this greeble versus that greeble and, and they'll get names for you know a group of them. Over time, if people train with objects like this, they can learn the names of the different greebles that look mostly indistinguishable if you haven't trained with them. Even though this is – again, these are like just made for the experiment. There's no like pre-existing Greeble set. Right, right. But you can train people. Right. On. And so what previous research had found is that people who get trained on these Greebles look at the Greebles and it seems to recruit the parts of the brain that are usually used for face processing. Hmm. This study from 2000 I mentioned extended this principle to other areas of visual expertise including birds and cars. Huh. So it found that when people had acquired an expertise for birds and cars – the brain recruited more of the face-processing-associated networks of the brain, such as the fusiform gyrus, when looking at the objects they were experts in. Interesting. Okay. And so at some points, this 2000 study has been used to argue that maybe the fusiform face area of the brain is more of a visual expertise center than a face center. Uh, but I think there's also a lot of evidence that's going the other way, that it has a natural and somewhat dedicated role in face perception. Uh, th this other side saying that it's naturally do uh, dedicated to faces is known as the domain specificity hypothesis. Uh, so there's stuff going back and forth. But just to cite another one that I thought was an interesting follow-up. To that uh, 2000 study, this one was by Yao De Zhu uh, called Revisiting the Role of the Fusiform Face Area in Visual Expertise, published in Cerebral Cortex in 2005. It followed up from the 2000 study about birds and cars, asking a reasonable question. The author here says, OK, if people with expertise in birds and cars show increased activation of the FFA when they look at birds and cars specifically, what if this is, quote, Due to experts taking advantage of the faceness of the stimuli, hmm. after all, birds have faces and three-quarter frontal views of cars resemble faces, which <laughs> was funny. But I was like, that's actually – that's a good question. Well, I, I think the, the faces of cars came up on a previous episode when we were talking about like the, our experience as a driver of a car and identifying with cars. Uh, about you know the, you have the the headlights and the grill. It looks like a face. Mm -hmm. I don't know about birds having faces. I think I'm I'm also. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I find it hard to believe that 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 I'm looking at a bird's face when I'm looking at the front of its head. So cats no faces, dogs no faces, birds no faces. I mean, I guess a chimpanzee has a face. Gorillas, you know, I would give that. I would attribute faces to. Uh, you know, to primates, especially higher primates. Okay. Uh, I don't know about lesser primates, though. You know. Uh, I have to think about that. Wow. <laughs> this is blowing my mind right here. I mean, does a shark have a face? Yeah, a shark has got eyes, mouth. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah. Clams don't have faces. No, no. Okay. Oysters don't have faces. No. Hmm. All right. Well, I, I would be interested to hear from listeners about this. Am I alone in, uh, <laughs> in, in how I feel about faces? We'll, we'll see. 
So the author here mentions that uh, the effects could also be due to uh, attentional modulation. In other words, to differences in how experts versus non-experts paid attention to what they were looking at. That also seems like a reasonable explanation. Uh, and so they ultimately find here, quote, in this study using both side view car images that do not resemble faces and bird images in an event-related fMRI design that minimizes attentional modulation, an expertise effect in the right FFA is observed in both car and bird experts, although a baseline bias makes the bird expertise f effect less reliable. These results are consistent with those of Gauthier et al. and suggest that uh, – suggest the involvement of the right FFA. FFA in processing non-face expertise visual stimuli. Okay, so this one seems to hold up the 2000 study. But I said that, the, you know, there was a dispute and that it's complicated. I found uh, plenty of other sources saying that, you know, there's all this independent evidence that the brain has a dedicated role. Uh, th this region of the brain or these networks in the brain have dedicated roles in face perception, the domain specificity hypothesis. And other studies have found conflicting results and argued against the expertise theory. For example, there was one in 2007 in Cognition by Rachel Robbins and Eleanor McCone uh, that found basically dog expertise. Experts showed no special face-like processing for dogs in non-face identification tasks. Uh, another thing I was reading is some researchers arguing that the engagement of the fusiform face area in areas of visual expertise was still somehow maybe just an artifact of how attention was being stimulated in those test conditions. Hmm. Uh, so I'm not sure if the opinion of neuroscientists has shifted largely to one side or the other of this debate in the years since. It does seem like there's a very solid consensus that at least some inherent domain specificity exists for the FFA, that at least in some way it is naturally dedicated to faces. But at least as far as I could tell, it could be possible to split the difference here. Like maybe it could be that f there's a face perception network of the brain shaped by evolution quite specifically to recognize faces and maybe it also just happens to be a good part of the brain to recruit for minute visual discrimination in other areas that the brain becomes highly adapted to through training. Yeah. Either way you shake it, I mean, the, the, the take-home is that faces are incredibly important. Right. And, so, uh, and, and we see that reflected in the, the neural machinery devoted to it. I think that's exactly right. It's a good point. So either side of this debate, whichever one is right, it's either that we've got this inbuilt uh, recognition capacity for faces that makes faces uniquely special, or we've got a visual expertise center that in most people becomes most highly attuned at looking at faces. And the mm -hmm. only things that really rival that engagement of the visual expertise center is like when you get super into a subject, like you're obsessed with birds. Right, right. And it becomes the same sort of visual experience too, Yeah, where, you know, you turn to some, say it's airplanes, um, where you're like, oh, I wonder what kind of airplane that is. You turn to your buddy who's a, an aviation geek, and they're like, they just a glance. You're like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a Spitfire. In the same way that you might turn and say, oh yeah, that's Doug. <laughs> right. Yeah. When when somebody's got visual expertise, and you ask them to recognize something, you notice how they emotionally light up. Mm -hmm. The same way that like you or I do when we suddenly recognize an actor in a B movie. Yeah. <laughs> you see that comparison? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Like it's. Um, I mean, it's like this is what I've been training for. Yeah. That's Robert England. Yes. Out of the Freddie Manko. <laughs> is that a, a more generalized reaction? Is that not just us that like people don't just look around for people who have familiar faces and recognize them but get really excited when they suddenly recognize somebody? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I mean, I think 
I, I see it in other people, so I presume that it is uh, part of the you know, normal experience or the you know the traditional experience. Because I guess if you were to apply it back to again like a small society model, it would be recognizing a friend, right? Like mm-hmm. on some level, the the actor that we associate with films that we like, like we we. We, we value them on some level. It's almost like they are a friend and spotting them in another film is like spotting a friend. Again, within the, the context of films, it might be different if you saw them on the street because you're like, oh, it would be like, oh, it's that act- that's weird. That's that actor from those uh, B movies I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some uh, – I can – then I'd all, you know, I'd be thinking about them covered in blood or something. But, <laughs> you know, but within the context of the films, it's like, oh, I, my friend is in this. Yeah. I don't remember their name but they were in, uh, you know, a whole bunch of old British TV shows and, uh, and, I'm, and, I, and I feel, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the arousal of recognizing them. Well, I think there is some evidence that the, there are extreme similarities in the way the brain reacts to images of celebrities and the way the brain reacts to images of known friends. I mm-hmm. mean, the, there's a lot of the same stuff going on. So I, I think the brain, when we see the same face over and over again on a TV, the brain sort of treats it as if we're seeing the same face over and over again next to the fire. Yeah, like really, that, I mean, that's why they call the television show Friends. Yeah. That's why people watched it religiously. While people, I mean, there's articles today about like how important the Netflix deal was to to have friends on Netflix. You mean the TV show the Friends, TV show not friends. the concept of Friends. Both, because I think they are the same. I th- based yeah. on the, the way they say people consume this show, mm. it is like the familiarity of it. It is encountering these same people over and over again. Uh, it, it is like they are your friends. And I, I mean, I, I, I never really watched that particular show, but I remember having like a similar relationship with, I think it was news radio mm. back in the day, and I would watch it when I was in college, and it's like I could turn it on and – and uh, in, in a sense, they were like my TV friends. There is – I, I think there's a lot to that. I think that goes on with, say, The Office today. Yeah. Have you read about like how much people stream The Office? Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of it's not even – I mean they're not even like trying to see how the plot plays out anymore. It might not even necessarily be about the comedy. It's just like you know, it's a very comfortable, cozy kind of place you can go with familiar faces. Mm-hmm. Of course, we'll have to leave the details of that to the the Journal of Sitcom Studies to be reviewed uh, later on. Maybe we need to take a break. Let's do it. All right, we're back. We're talking about facial recognition. More specifically, we're talking about the facial recognition that occurs uh, inside the human brain. Yeah, uh, and in the brains of other animals. Though yes. uh, There are some obvious parallels there. So we discussed at the beginning how this, this story just gets more and more complicated the more you look at it. I want to complicate things further with a really interesting article that I was reading in uh, in, in the journal Nature, their, their news section. They had a news feature by a writer named Allison Abbott, which was about the work of the Caltech neuroscientist Doris Tsao, who studies facial recognition. And so I'll try to give a brief summary of this. So basically, in the late 2000s, uh, Tsao and her colleagues were doing repeated brain imaging and targeted electrode stimulation studies on the brains of macaques, a type of old-world monkey, which uh, allowed them to identify six different patches of a part of the brain called the inferior temporal cortex on each side of the macaque brain, which would react specifically when the monkey saw a face of a human or another monkey, but not when looking at other objects like a spoon – 
And stimulation of one of these patches would cause activation in all the others. They were sort of chained together for simultaneous neural activity. And what the researchers learned over time was that individual cells in individual patches tended to be specialized to specific parts of faces. So one spot in this matrix would respond by firing faster consistently based on how far apart the eyes were. Like, say, if the eyes are farther apart, it fires faster. If they're closer together, it fires slower. And then others would respond specifically to changes in other features, like the size of the nose or in the irises. And they use this knowledge to create what has been called now a face code, a kind of top-level system for sorting faces along these major dimensions that the brain responds to in a specialized way. So, you know, kind of like if you're creating a, a character in a wrestling video game, mm-hmm. you've got like maybe 60 different values that you can adjust the sliders on. Okay. And so it turns out that the brain, at least according to this research, appears to have individual neurons dedicated to each of those sliders. So like as the as the slider goes from 0 to 100, that individual neuron starts to fire faster and faster. Uh, So you can see these like coded regions of the brain that map to individual elements within the face. Now, an interesting thing here was that the outermost cells in the cortex seem to respond to the most obvious stimuli, such as like face shape with, uh, you know, things like distance between the eyes or length of the mouth, Mm. Uh, whereas deeper cells seem to focus more on more minute data, like things about the texture of the skin and stuff. I guess to some extent that like lines up with our experience of of glimpsing somebody and then maybe doing that second look or that more uh, detailed look to follow up on the initial impression. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think that's exactly right. Uh, but then uh, to read uh, a quote here, quote, the research seemed to point to a mechanism by which individual cells in the cortex interpret increasingly complex visual information until at the deepest points, individual cells code for particular people. Huh. And this goes with a finding by a researcher named Rodrigo Kion Quiroga, who uh, earlier in the 2000s discovered something that was called in the media Jennifer Aniston cells <laughs> uh, to come back to friends because these were literally single neurons that appeared to respond to pictures of specific famous or familiar people. Uh, and it was also found that this – so if you have a cell for Jennifer Aniston in your brain, the Jennifer Aniston cell would respond to the evocation of a concept of that person as well as to the picture. So it would respond to seeing a picture of, of Jennifer Aniston or to like seeing her name written or even to seeing lists of movies that she appeared in. Hmm. And am I correct in remember what Jennifer Aniston was one of the friends, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, okay. Yes, Just yes. wanted to be sure on that that I wasn't <laughs> making that up. Okay. You're talking about friends, like you know. <laughs> well, I, I I was pretty sure, but I wasn't 100 percent sure. Uh huh. Well, they could just as easily have been David Schwimmer cells. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I can definitely picture her in my mind, and I can picture David Schwimmer. Uh-huh. Uh, like they're they're just coded in there. Uh, I mean, I, I, there, there's no denying their faces. It does make me wonder if you could conceivably, like knowing uh, about the, these cells, the Jennifer Aniston cells, could you remove Jennifer Jennifer Aniston from your mind? Oh, I wonder. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know exactly how that works. Theoretically speaking, obviously, not like do-it-yourself-at-home kind of a thing. But 
uh, it's I wonder if that would be an interesting sort of um, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind kind of spinoff idea mm. because – of course, the, the the nature of that film was like completely removing a, a person or experience from the brain, like wholesale memories and all. Uh-huh. But what if you could only remove the face of, say, an individual who brought you stress or grief? Like what would that alone do? How would that impact the other information that is there if it itself is untouched? I don't know. I mean – as usual, the things inside the brain turn out to have a much more complicated relationship yeah. to our, you know, our phenomenal experience of the world and our internal experience of thoughts usually than would be implied just by like a single cell change in the brain has this clear effect on life. But I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I would suspect that changing that one cell would not entirely eliminate this person from the brain because you have complex networks of memories and emotions that all involve familiar people and celebrities. Yeah. You know, another thing, this is not something we, we came across in the study, but it also makes me wonder about the faces of individuals in literature that, mm-hmm. that one might read. Uh, like, or you've I, never seen the You've face. never seen them. and But on some level, it, it is probably not like the detailed version of a face unless you're doing an exercise that I would do almost religiously as a young reader and still fall back on occasionally and that is subbing an actor into a role. Cast the book. Yeah. Casting the book. I would do that all the time when I was uh, a kid. And I'll, again, I'll still sometimes fall into it today. But then other times there will be a, a kind of – there will be a face or an almost face in my head. Maybe it's not super detailed. It's not as detailed as a real person, but it's there kind of floating around in my head. And when I think of that character, that face emerges. I think we've missed the time window for this, but I'm now recasting Dune with the cast of Friends, oh. right? <laughs> so Duke Leto is David Schwimmer and uh, and let's see, Joey is, is Paul Atreides, right? Uh, uh, I guess so. No, actually, Hollywood people, if you're listening, here's my pitch. Uh, redo The Punisher, starring David Schwimmer as Punisher. <laughs> well, I mean, Sh- Schwimmer's been good in some things. So I, I, I guess he, I, can, I can imagine him playing The Punisher. I'll go okay. ahead and go that far. It's only one way to know. Yeah. So eventually, after uh, doing all this research about these sort of like neurons or patches of the brain that are coding for individual variables that can vary with the human face, Zhao and her colleagues began researching um, broader variables for visual recognition of objects that worked very much along the same lines as the face variable neurons. So some examples that were cited in uh, Abbott's feature on this. Neurons that appear to respond specifically to, quote, whether something is spiky like a camera tripod or stubby like a USB stick. Mm -hmm. So you could have kind of a slider in the brain that corresponds with a specific tiny patch about whether it's got spikes or whether it's kind of rounded or something. Uh The Kiki Booba thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But then uh, other things might correspond to whether something is animate like a cat or inanimate like a spoon. Hmm. Uh, And there can be things in between that maybe a washing machine is a little more more animate than a spoon but less animate than a cat. Interesting. And again, this would be expressed by how rapidly that neuron fires uh, when viewing that particular stimuli. Uh, But Sal and her colleagues got to the point where they could predict – 
the appearance of an object that a subject was looking at with reasonable accuracy based on sampling the firing rate of just about 400 neurons. So you can get all these different variables just by looking at how fast those neurons are firing. And this suggests that there could be a feature-based coding system that may operate across the whole brain. Uh, and so taking away from this research, uh, Sal is talking to the uh, to the author here and, and she says that, you know, the, the brain is not just like, uh, quote, a sequence of passive sieves fishing out faces, food or ducks. Instead, she says, quote, it's a hallucinating engine that is generating a version of reality based on the current best internal model of the world. And I, I think this is a really important and interesting way to think about visual perception and recognition. There's so much going on in any image of the world that you look at. It seems almost impossible that your brain is actually registering all the information constantly, simultaneously, and updating based on, you know, what is actually taking place in the world. It seems more like your brain is kind of creating an illusion that you are looking at the world and then pretty frequently updating little key bits of data about that illusion. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like – in my experience, to bring this back to Dungeons and Dragons, it's like playing Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> and telling yourself, yeah, I know what all the rules are. Uh, but then when individual rules come up, you're like, actually, I need to check that rule again. Maybe I don't know that rule. Uh -huh. That's kind of what it's like to walk around the world and, and take in visual sense data. Uh, and, and But I but I love this idea of the, the hallucinating engine of the of the brain because this, this does – this description matches up so much of what we've discussed on the show mm -hmm. that your memories are not reality, that your perception is not reality, that your feelings are not reality. Mm -hmm. Not to say that all three of those things are lies. No, they're, they are, based, on they're based on reality. But they themselves are not 100 uh, percent accurate. They are not 100 percent – they are not a reflection of the world. They are at best a distorted reflection of the absolute reality. Uh, and even then, like it's hard to even say what, what that is, right? I mean – the, the the vision – your yeah. vision is not a camera feed. Right. It is not recording passively, objectively everything that happens in front of your face. It is instead sort of a hallucination that is quite frequently updated with little bits of data. Right. And that's without even getting into discussions of how our vision and other senses match up against the other organic senses of uh, various creatures in our world, things with, with far sharper vision that can see uh, in different wavelengths, things with far sharper hearing and, and scent mm -hmm. uh, that uh, that therefore live in uh, what I've, I've often seen described as like a different sensory world. Um, but you can't walk around the world reminding yourself of that. <laughs> but ultimately, like the version that you form in your head has to be your working model of reality. And, uh, you know, otherwise that you just go mad. Yeah. Uh, there's a really interesting thing that gets pursued at the end of Abbott's article here where uh, – she talks about the idea of like what's the best model for sort of the whole brain visual perception of, of what you're seeing in front of you. And, uh, and she makes reference to this idea of predictive processing. Quote, the brain operates by predicting how its immediate surroundings will change millisecond by millisecond and comparing that prediction with the information it receives through the various senses. It uses any mismatch or prediction error to update its model of the world. 
world. So maybe, you know, you're you're kind of simultaneously simulating the world in front of you at mm-hmm. the same time you're watching it. And the watching could be there to note little ways in which your prediction is turning out wrong and then trying to fix it. Right. Or being hypersensitive to the ways that the uh, that, that your sensory input matches your, uh, your simulation, which can be a great way of just wandering into delusion, you know, or yeah. living in a, a state of paranoia uh, because you're just, you're just looking for this, the, the, the sense data that will back up the version of reality that you have stored in your mind, that you're, you're cultivating in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's one more point of comparison that I thought was interesting because the article makes reference to optical illusions. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this question of – so when you look at an optical illusion, it's one of those things that has a, like a double image valence. It's the duck and it's the rabbit. Right. You don't see the duck and the rabbit halfway. You know, mm-hmm. you don't see it both at the same time or halfway between. You see it – I mean most people tend to see fully duck and then there's a flip in the brain and the brain readjusts and then you see fully rabbit. Isn't that interesting? Like yeah. what's causing that flip? Nothing has changed in terms of what you're looking at, but suddenly the brain undergoes some kind of internal change and it has completely reversed what you perceive yourself, what you perceive in front of you. Like an, yeah, another example would be when the the accidental face in a design is pointed out to you and then you cannot unsee it. Yeah. Um, uh, or uh, like one, one for me is the, uh, the double hanger that uh, looks like a drunken octopus that wants to box. Oh, it like took a me a second. Yeah. Yes, yes. On the back of a door, yeah. it's got two little prongs. Yes. Yeah. Like before, yeah. it was just a coat hanger. But then once that was pointed out, that's all I can see. Like that's how it's coated in my brain. It's fighting Joe Octopus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or if you look at uh, Edvard Munch's The Scream. Uh-huh. But if has anybody ever told you to look at it and see if you can see the Springer Spaniel? No, I don't think I've done that exercise. Okay, look at the the head on the screen next okay. time and just think Springer Spaniel and then you won't be able to unsee it. <laughs> so there's another interesting development about facial recognition in the brain that I was reading about uh, in a 2016 article by a couple of researchers named Anna K. Bobak and Sarah Bate who at the time were conducting research on face perception at Bournemouth University in England Uh, And uh, so they point out that one aspect of a typical human brain's face perception is the ability to engage what they call a configural or holistic strategy for visual processing, meaning that these human brains are able to sort of see faces as a whole rather than examining the independent features of a face one at a time. And I've actually read there was something similar going on with visual expertise, that like when Hmm. people have visual expertise for cars, they're much better able to get an idea of what a car is with a holistic sort of one-glance view rather than having to look at individual parts of the car. And this ties into something I've read about people with prosopagnosia. Oliver Sacks actually describes this process of of a sort of hack or workaround for their condition that basically involves examining the elements of a face for special identifying marks or features, the the way you might look for, you know, a known dent or bumper sticker to identify a familiar car from others of the same model and color. Or a particular hairstyle I think is sometimes brought up, right? Or style or, or mode of dress. Yeah. 
So Bobak and Bate describe uh, some research they conducted on people with typical face perception versus people with prosopagnosia versus people sometimes known as super recognizers who are sort of the opposite end of prosopagnosia. They have Hmm. unusually high accuracy in uh, remembering and recognizing faces, even for people they haven't seen in a long time. And the authors here write that they used eye tracking software to see where these different groups of people tended to look when they were examining a human face, and there were some interesting differences here. So they found on average people with typical face perception would tend to focus basically around the eyes most when trying to identify a face. Um, And they note some previous research on people with acquired prosopagnosia, including a 2008 study from the Journal of uh, Neuropsychology by Orban de Zivri et al. And it found that people with face blindness tend to look less at the eyes and at the upper area of the face and tend to look more at lower regions of the face like the mouth when trying to identify faces. Hmm. And the authors note that their, their recent research again showed people with prosopagnosia were looking less at the eyes than typical subjects. Meanwhile, they note that super recognizers in their studies tended to, on average, focus more on the nose, which was kind of strange. Uh, Mm. But they had an idea about that. So is it something special about the nose itself as a feature of the face? Or is it, as they kind of propose, more of a diagnostic center of the gaze hmm. uh, that that gravitates toward the center of the face when we are better at getting a holistic sense of a face from a glance rather than trying to examine its individual features one by one? And so the authors here argue that it is the center of the face rather than the eyes in particular or any other feature that optimally engages the brain's facial recognition systems. Interesting. Uh, I mean, one thing that it brings to mind is when you look, it's kind of the old adage, right, to look someone in the eyes, Mm -hmm. to to sort of engage in a more direct theory of mind with them, right, to try and sort of – it's like you're having a like a mind melt moment, right? Uh-huh. Where it seems like if you're looking at someone's nose, I mean that that reminds me of exercises. People say, "Oh, you know, if you want to, you know, cut down on anxiety during a uh, like a, a an interview, mm-hmm. uh, look at the person's forehead. You know, don't look at them in the eyes." So it feels like a holistic view of the face is also an impersonal view of the face. It feels, hmm. at least to me, it feels like if you're looking somebody in the eyes, you're also engaging in consideration of their mind, which might conceivably be distracting from the identification process, right? So maybe yes. it is better to to look at the nose. Like, don't think of this person as a person. Think of them as a face that matches up with a name. I, I They didn't mention that, and I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's a very interesting point. Yes, that like... Perhaps by focusing a little bit less directly on the eyes, you are somewhat depersonalizing the experience of the face recognition, and thus you can you can cut out some emotional distraction. Now, maybe that's just my individual like social anxiety speaking there. You know, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, we don't know that's the case. That's mm-hmm. just like an interesting possibility. Yeah. yeah. Because, well, I mean, it reminds me how in the last episode we were talking about technology for facial recognition, of course, being used by law enforcement. And one of the things the authors note in this article here is that human super recognizers are in many places now being directly sought out and employed by law enforcement. Interesting. To like, you know, to be able to like look at video feeds and try to match people with known photos of, of wanted criminals and stuff. Huh. Again, that kind of like impersonal recognizing thing, especially, you know, in in a law enforcement context, 
seems like it's possible it could be aided if you are seeing less of a person's humanity when looking at their face and just literally trying to make the most accurate match of features. Has this been exploited in a, a network uh, crime-solving series yet? Oh, like the Dexter of super-recognizing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I would be shocked if it has not happened or at least been pitched to a major studio. Super-recognizer. <laughs> I'd give it an episode. I'd try it. Uh, but, you know, this also makes me think about the different types of machine face recognition systems out there, of which, of course, you know, we know there are many. Uh, some are more oriented around specific details of the face. For example, I've seen the idea of distance between the eyes. Again, this mm-hmm. is something that humans and, and macaques apparently use as a major metric for face evaluation. But it's also a common thing used by machines. Uh, but uh, but others probably take a more holistic approach. I'm not an expert in AI, but I imagine that the neural net-based facial recognition algorithms trained on wild photo data might be more reasonably compared to the face as a whole biological process. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. So we've been talking about uh, facial recognition. Largely, mm-hmm. in this episode, we've been talking about the uh, the complexity of, of organic facial recognition, the kind of f- f- facial recognition that's going on inside uh, the human brain and in the brains of, uh, of animals, uh, as opposed to uh, that going on with AI. Right. Now, one of the things I know we talked about in the last episode was uh, among our many concerns about artificial intelligence for facial recognition were there are various types types of bias that have been documented to show up in in uh, computer-based AI for facial recognition. Yeah, specifically we're talking about um, issues involving problems with these AI programs recognizing uh, black and or Asian faces uh, because this also – this is interesting because it also forces us to confront not only racial bias in the creation of programs and AI, it also mirrors our organic issues with facial recognition for races other than our own. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's been a lot written about this topic. Uh, there have been a, a number of studies. But uh, just in uh, – just last year from July, uh, there was an article in The Guardian titled, uh, Perception of Other Races uh, Lookalike Rooted in Visual Process, says study. Uh, and this looked at a Stanford University study on this oft-researched issue. Uh, One point that the researchers stressed was something we were just talking about earlier. What our human senses pick up on is not necessarily an accurate representation of reality. And uh, as we've discussed before, there's a a lot of consolidation involved, the loose stitching of things together based on actual perceived details, on memories, on preconceived notions, on fears, suggestions, and more. And this uh, particular MRI-assisted study uh, it only involved 20 white individuals evaluating the faces of black faces and white faces, but it showed a greater activation of, um, of, of face recognition uh, regions in the brain when, they, when a white test subject looked at white faces compared to black faces. Now, dissimilar faces, that being, you know, faces that are no, no matter what, uh, you know, the, the race of the individual might be, stand out more. Mm-hmm. Um, Dissimilar faces resulted in a spike, but apparently the spike was still greater in cases of dissimilar white faces. 
Now, to be clear, this is not a case of, oh, uh, we as humans do this because, look, here's our brains doing it. You know, a, a lot, uh, you know, a lot was, was not taken into account with this study, such as the social backgrounds of the individuals and all. Mm-hmm. Uh, as always, one assumes an interplay of, of neural software and sociocultural conditioning. But uh, above all, they, they want to drive home, it's also not proof that racial prejudice is to be dismissed as being just a, a, a neurological reality. Well, why would that mean it should be dismissed? I mean, even if it is a neurological reality, that doesn't right. make it okay. Right. Uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, here's a quote from uh, Dr. Brent Hughes, uh, a co-author um, of, of, the, of the paper from University of California, Riverside. Quote, individuals should not be let off the hook for their prejudicial attitudes just because we see evidence of race biases in perception. To the contrary, these race biases in perception are malleable and subject to individual motivations and goals. Mm-hmm. So again, coming back to the interplay between software and hardware. Uh, but I think I, I do think there's a lot to contemplate here. The way our organic and, and currently our technological facial recognition systems are subject to racial bias, uh, but that in both cases, they are malleable. There are ways to tweak and improve just as there's, uh, there's room to uh, allow these imperfect perceptions of reality to color what we believe about the world. Probably one of the most important things is for people not to be lulled in by the misperception that because something is a computer algorithm or that it's a machine, mm-hmm. that it's impossible for it to have a bias. I mean, right. clearly, we just know that that's not true. I mean, obviously, the machine isn't motivated emotionally. The machine doesn't say hate people or care about people in whatever right. way. But it's guided by rules that are created by training uh, based on data sets that are in the real world, which might incorporate racial biases, or it can be trained, uh, you know, on explicit rules generated by people, whether by malice or just by mistake, have some kind of racial bias incorporated in them. Yeah, I mean, and on the human side of things, this is only a glimpse at very broad facial perception. Because also consider how cute into facial expressions we are, and how this too can be biased. I was looking at what's in a face, how face, gender, and current uh, effect influence perceived emotion from 2016. This was in the front, uh, Frontiers in Psychology. And the findings included a, um, a bias to perceive male faces as more negative and that perceptions of female faces depended on current mood. So to summarize both cases, the male face uh, that an individual perceived needs to be happier looking compared to a female face to elect an interpretation of even just neutral emotion. So just male faces in general are interpreted as having more negative emotion in them. Yes. And then uh, meanwhile, the happier a given male observer is, the more inclined they are to see a female's face as happy. Okay. Which is which is kind of complicated. But that comes back again to like what is my emotional state? Mm-hmm. That is then – uh, that is then affecting the emotional state I perceive in other people, and all of this is adding to my perception of what's going on in reality. Oh, and this is the classic like, oh, yeah, she thought the joke was funny. I was laughing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, this is just one study I'm referring to here and should be taken as uh, the gold standard or anything, but it does provide a glimpse and it just, again, how complex and unreal our perception of reality is. And, and I think, you know, it, it makes sense because we are, we are such social creatures that the social reality of a human is of tremendous importance. Uh, but of course, reading the social reality of a person is rooted in various conscious and subconscious processes. It also depends on theory of mind. It's highly susceptible to, uh, to, to bias based on conditioning, culture, and more. Now, now, currently, mostly what we've talked about with um, with AI and facial recognition software, it is concerning just the measurements of the face, the appearance of the face, and not so much emotional states. But 
that's uh, that's not to say that that uh, the, the programmers of these uh, these AI are not interested in reading that information as well, or at least the marketers, right? <laughs> but uh, well, no, I mean, I guess both because yeah, to do a little more on faces and emotion. I think some of the same problems with human perception of emotion in other people's faces are translated now to technology except made even more blunt and inaccurate. (laughs) Um, So many technology companies in recent years, including IBM, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, etc., have all been advertising AI that can read human emotions by inferring them from facial expressions. Mm -hmm. And there are some cases where even companies that have shied away from doing facial recognition as in like, you know, uh, this is Jeff's face, mm-hmm. have still said it's okay to try to just look at a face anonymously and judge what its emotional state is. And this is being advertised as useful for evaluating candidates in a job interview or analyzing uh, emotional states of customers in a retail environment. You know, you want happy customers or assessing potential threats from people trying to conceal anger, all, all kinds of stuff. I even saw one that was trying to sell it as uh, as like a driving safety feature, you know, <laughs> detecting like road rage on the face. So just one example, uh, an August 2019 piece I was reading in Wired discussing Amazon's image uh, analysis software known as Recognition with a K. Uh, Yeah, just the spelling of that is terrible. (laughs) But uh, So at the time, this was claiming to be able to assess emotions in faces including happiness, sadness, anger, uh, surprise, disgust, calmness, confusion, and then the newest one they had just added to the list when this article came out was fear. Hmm, okay. Well, that's a big one. Why is that last? <laughs> I don't know. The, that's the one they brought online last. Though it makes me think of the end of uh, Starship Troopers. It's afraid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, what does the scientific research tell us about how well these algorithms should be expected to do in uh, reading emotions? I, I was looking at a paper by uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Ralph Adolphs, Stacy Marcella, Alex M. Martinez, and Seth D. Pollock in Psychological Science in the Public Interest, published in 2019 called Emotional Expressions Reconsidered Challenges to Inferring Emotion from Human Facial Movements. And they looked at, you know, like a ton of, I think like over a thousand studies. It was a huge meta review. And they conclude that the whole premise on which these algorithms is based is close to worthless because, shocker, they're is a little bit of information about emotional states encoded in human faces, but it's not nearly enough to give you a very accurate picture of internal states. People's faces reflect all kinds of strange, complicated, fleeting emotions back and forth. They might be faking emotions with their faces. And the way, even when humans read each other's emotions, which we were just talking about, you know, they're not always totally good at doing. Mm-hmm. But when humans do it, they incorporate way more than just the face. They incorporate body language, tone, all kinds of things to read emotion. And the the AIs are not even that good. They're just going off the face. And the researchers say that, you know, the evidence concludes that looking at the face alone is completely insufficient to get an accurate picture of internal emotional states. And it's kind of dangerous to suggest that you can get an accurate picture of emotional states just with facial analysis. To read a quote, scientists agree that facial movements convey a range of information and are important for social communication, emotional or otherwise. But our review suggests an urgent need for research that examines how people 
actually move their faces to express emotions and other social information in the variety of contexts that make up everyday life, as well as a careful study of the mechanisms by which people perceive instances of emotion in one another. Hmm. Uh, so the way to read their conclusion is these these facial recognition algorithms might be able to predict emotion with a rate slightly better than chance based on faces, mm -hmm. you know, so they read your face and they see a smile on it and they say, this person's happy. <laughs> and that's a little bit better than guessing your emotional state at random, but not a lot better. Have these these programmers never heard tracks of my tears? Do they, <laughs> do they not know how, uh, how smiles work? Uh, but it does sound like we could get to the point where our, we could have, be driving automobiles that tell us to smile more. Yeah. Uh, to to because uh, we you know we already have them that uh, that try and sort of judge what our like state of wakefulness is based on our driving performance. You know, uh -huh. Where they'll say, "Do you need a break?" and there'll be like a coffee cup uh, um, symbol, a little pop up on the dash. Uh, it's it's not that uh, difficult to imagine a scenario where one will will um, you know pick up on some very broad signs of displeasure and start chiming in with some uh, advice. I don't know why, but just thinking about this is making me mad. <laughs> I want to say go download some malware, computer. You don't know me. <laughs> Get broken. What, well, what if it was more subtle than that? What if, if, if your car picked up on some very you know, overt signs of displeasure? What if your car just told you that it loved you? I think I would fall for that. I would, uh, you know, if it was presented appropriately, I would be like, yes, thank you. Finally. Yes. Wrap your hands, cross my engines. All right, that's enough, Bruce. We uh, Are we ready to wrap up for today? Yes. Okay, but I think we will be back with at least one more part, right, where we're going to talk about the history of facial recognition technology and a little more about the modern implications, possible regulation schemes, and stuff like that. Absolutely. Uh, in the meantime, uh, certainly we'd love to hear from anyone out there uh, because we all have uh, faces. We have some experience with uh, with, with facial recognition and varying levels of facial recognition. I know we've heard from listeners who have, uh, who have uh, you know, varying degrees of difficulty or uh, I'd love to hear from someone who thinks they might be a super recognizer or is uh, like a, what, a verified super recognizer. In the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of the show, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts. If you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, that will shoot you over to the iHeart listing for this show. Uh, but wherever you get the show, make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe. Those are the ways you can help us out. And don't forget about Invention. That's our other show. That is a journey through human techno history. And uh, what right now we're, we're talking about uh, fire technology over there. We're talking about uh, matches and also just the the, the, the ability, the the, the match massive step uh, forward in human technology that enabled us to not only capture fire, but to recreate it. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.